Our second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 18 through 31. You can find this on page 1122 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the word of God. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among among many brothers and sisters. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, you uh, made this world by the speaking of your word. Uh, You see all of time and all of history at a glance. You have given us a place and a purpose within your divine plan. You have formed us out of formlessness. You give us sense out of senselessness. We pray this day that your shaping, forming, sense-giving word would uh, take root in our hearts. Lord, we confess that we live in a world that is filled with chaos that is at war with itself. We pray that you would continue to speak your word of peace into this world, that you would come quickly and reign over this world. 
We pray that you would continue to keep your church safe wherever she may be here in Huntington Valley, throughout the world. We do pray for our brothers and sisters who live in places uh, where they are not able to meet in open uh, and, and in safety this this morning. I pray that you would uh, give them an extra measure of that peace which passes all understanding. Pray that you would encourage them and that you would bring fruit to their ministry, each in their own place. Lord, we pray for those who live here in our neighborhood, here in Huntington Valley and in the surrounding area. We pray for those who do not know you yet as Lord and Savior. We pray that you would keep them safe while they are wandering in darkness, but I pray that you would continue to draw them to yourself, that I pray that the light of the gospel would be attractive for them. I pray that they would come to know you as Savior and come to discover the sense of their life and the purpose of their life and the shape of their life. Father God, for those of our number who are unable or who are afraid to come out this morning, I pray that you would be present with them and that you would minister to them through supernatural means or maybe even through technological means. I pray that this pandemic, which is a hand of burden upon us at this time, that it would not press us away from one another. Lord, I know that Satan loves to use things like this to divide your people. But I pray that you would continue to keep us one. That you would continue to keep us uh, in your light and that you would continue to keep our eyes focused on you. Lord, I do pray that this pandemic would pass. I pray that we would be able to move in safety and in confidence. Lord, for those of our number who are sick this day, I pray that you would heal their bodies, those who are facing cancer and surgeries. I pray that you would be with their medical teams. I pray that you would be with their families as their families gather around them and worry about them and care for them and support them. Lord, for those of our number who are feeling distressed because of conflict in their family or alienation, for those who are underemployed or unemployed, for those who are troubled in their mind or in their body or in their spirit, Lord, I pray that you would be their all in all, that you would be their sufficiency. I pray that you would teach each one of us to turn to you in times of trouble. I pray that we would not lean on our own understanding. I pray that you would use the blessings of this life to cause our lips to sing your praise, and that you would cause the troubles of this life to cause us to turn to you and to seek our salvation in you. Lord God, you have made us not for this world, but for eternity and so I pray that you would loose our hearts from the system and the rewards of this world 
That we would not be dazzled by things that are passing away, but rather that we would pursue things that are eternal, that we would lay up treasure in heaven. And Lord, as we work for the coming of your kingdom, I pray that we would be useful in this world, that we would be a blessing to others around us, relieving suffering, proclaiming the gospel. Father God, this is your church. We are a people that you have rescued. We're not gathered here because we're good. We're gathered here because you have given us the light to know that we are sinners and that our only hope is in Christ. And that light has caused order and sanity and reasonableness to come to our life. It's caused us to reorder our priorities. It's caused us to worry less about the things that don't matter and to worry more about the things that you care about. Lord, we confess that we are not yet arrived, that we are not fully sanctified, that we've got a long way to go. And I pray that we would not be complacent in this journey, I pray that we would not be weary. I pray that we would continue to press forward into the things that you have for us. I pray that you be honored and glorified in our lives. I pray that our lives would make a difference, that they would count for you. Lord, this morning as we turn to your word, we ask that you would send us a full measure of your Holy Spirit so that these ancient words might come to life for us this day and make sense to us each in our own lives and each in our own context. Lord God, your word is true for all people. It is true in all cultures. It is true in all times. Because your word has come from outside of time and penetrated this world. You have invaded this world. And we take delight in you. Bless us now as we continue to worship you by attending to your word. These favors we ask in the name of Jesus who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I love that our first reading this morning is on page one. It feels extra special uh, being on page one. Uh, we have, again, read uh, a little part of the very familiar first chapter of Genesis where we have uh, the story of the creation uh, of the world. Um, we're going to start looking at chapters one and chapters two a little more closely uh, in the coming weeks. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, the hermeneutic or the method of reading that we use when we look at a, at a, at a document like this. 
The first thing I want you to be aware of, and maybe when you go home uh, this afternoon, you could read through chapters 1 and chapters 2 to re-familiarize yourself with this very, uh, very familiar story. Uh, I want you to realize that those two chapters are two separate accounts of the creation of the world. They have a different internal logic. They have a different sequence of events. There is the telling of the uh, of the creation of the world uh, in, in Genesis 1. And then there's a retelling of the creation of the world in Genesis 2. Take a look at those and, and, and let that seep into your, into your heart and uh, uh, into your mind uh, as we take a look at that in, in the coming weeks. This morning I want to talk a little bit about how Genesis 1 works. And... Our standard for all of Scripture is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so anytime we look at any passage in the Bible, the question that's coming into, or should be coming into our mind is, well... How does this train us for righteousness? How is this helping us to become the people that God wants us to be? In what way is it a reproof if we're doing something wrong or a correction? In what way does it teach us what's right? All right. Notice that uh, uh, 2 Timothy says that all of Scripture has this function and, and this purpose. And so whenever we come to any passage, we need to be asking ourselves... What is it that God wants us to learn from this that is going to contribute to uh, my righteousness? Now, I use uh, a method of reading scripture uh, that's rooted in the Reformed tradition that really has two parts of it. Uh, the, the one part of it is, is that we read scripture according to its plain sense. Okay? And the second is that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now, by reading Scripture in the plain sense, what I mean is, is that you read it the way a normal person would read it. Uh, we don't go looking for some kind of secret or occult or arcane meanings in the text. We read it the way a, a regular person would read it. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, all of the things in Scripture are to be read in the same way or that Scripture is incapable of, of metaphor or illusion, but we read it in a, in a way that makes sense with regard to the genre that we're reading in. For example, in John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, all of you understand that passage, but none of you think that when Jesus says that he's the bread of life, that Jesus is saying that he's made out of flour and yeast and water. We understand that this is a metaphor. Uh, and so we, and just naturally, we would read it as a metaphor. We also recognize that People who've come to Jesus still get hungry, even though he said, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Why? Well, because we use the hunger, the word hunger in two different ways. So we get hungry in the body, 
Jesus is saying something about spiritual hunger, and the same goes for the so for, for the thirst. All of you are able to read that, uh, and there's no reason to go looking for some kind of secret meaning in there. Here's a fun passage. This is Revelation chapter 14, verses 15 through 16. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. John's in heaven. He's having a vision of the end of time. And we would be mistaken if we are thinking that a giant sickle is going to come out of the cloud and cut the surface of the earth. We all understand that this is a metaphor for reaping, and the reaping is often a metaphor for people being taken in death. And so we read it in its plain sense. We read it the way a normal person would read it. Now we also take, uh, we also are aware of the genre of the, of the piece that we're reading. The Bible is, you know, it's composed of 66 different books. There's a lot of different styles in there. Some parts of it are, uh, uh, are histories, uh, you know, like the Kings and Chronicles and Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those, those are, uh, uh, works of history. Uh, some parts of it are prophecy. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Revelation. Some parts of it are poetry. The Psalms are poetry. The Song of Solomon is poetry. Some parts are letters that one man has written to the church. Okay, And each of those genres has certain unwritten rules uh, that all of us know. Uh, and that we understand that genre when we're reading, when we're reading those words. You and I do this when we're reading the newspaper. All of you know that we read the sports page differently from the front page. If on the sports page you read about some player who is on fire, it means something different than on the front page when you hear about someone who is on fire. All right, this is and and you don't have to go to seminary to figure this out. This is just the normal way that we read. Okay, this is the plain sense of things. All right, we read uh, a news account different than we read an advertisement uh, in the newspaper. And so we think about the genre of each part that we're reading. So what is the genre of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2? First thing you might want to think about is who wrote those chapters. Now, traditionally... Uh, the first five books of the Bible are attributed to Moses. Those books don't say that they were written by Moses, but that is the tradition, uh, and that is the, the understanding of who wrote those books. Uh, Moses, of course, is the, the greatest of all of the prophets. He's the law, he's the law bringer. We, we know that some parts, uh, we know that Moses couldn't have written all of it. Maybe he wrote part of it. It's actually not terribly important who wrote it, but, uh, because there are parts of the first five books that record 
the death of Moses. And so Moses obviously didn't record his own death. But what about those first two chapters of Genesis? Written by Moses. In some sense, they look like history. It's an account of the beginning of the world. But we know that Moses wasn't present at the time of those events that are recorded in the first two chapters of Genesis. Moses was not there on the first day of creation. Moses was not there on the sixth day of creation. So the account of what's going on in the creation is very different than, for example, the account that we see in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, where we have the story of the rebuilding of the, of the wall in Jerusalem, uh, the author of Nehemiah was present at those events, and he's telling you about stuff that he saw with his own eyes. That's like a kind of a normal history. Other parts of, you know, the kings and chronicles are the, work in the same way. Uh, the Acts of the Apostles uh, is an account that's written by people who saw these events. Something different is going on in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Actually, Genesis 1 through chapter 3 as well, uh, chapter 11 as well, but we'll talk about that another time. The category that I use for the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which are accounts of things that happened before the writer was alive, are the, 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 the category that I use is what I call retrospective prophecy. Retrospective prophecy. So prophets are given by God a vision of things that they're not present for. In the revelation of John, John is given a vision of the future. Well, John's not in the future. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, chooses to give John some insight. What's that future going to look like? Same with, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah. There's a vision of what the future is going to hold. Holy Spirit inspires these men prospectively seeing into the future something that they did not, could not see by the natural eye. Alright, that's, most of prophecy in the Bible is a prospective, for, future, forward-looking prophecy. But in the case of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have a retrospective prophecy. The prophet, let's call him Moses, is seeing things by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he didn't see with his own eyes. He didn't see in a natural way. All right? There's some kind of insight that he's been given into something that he couldn't have known through the normal way. So I call it a retrospective prophecy. All right? So certainly uh, Moses is identified as a prophet. He's not identified as a chronicler. Uh, and his prophecy is a prophecy that looks... That looks backwards. Well, what's the purpose of this prophecy that looks backwards? Well, it's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The reason that we have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is to train us how to be righteous people, train us how to be godly people. As it turns out, people who have a grasp of the truth of the doctrine of creation... They live differently 
People who live in a godless world that, you know, this world just always was and whatever, it just kind of, it kind of magically or randomly happened. They have a different life than believers have. Now, it's impossible for us to be trained in righteousness if we do not believe that this world is a created world. If we do not believe that God made it the way that He wanted it. And as we understand the doctrine of creation more and more fully, it will reprove us. It will correct us with regard to a whole bunch of things. Things like human sexuality. Things like our relationship to the environment. Things about the nature of the church. All of these are actually rooted in the doctrine of creation. I think it would be a mistake to read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 the same way that we read uh, 1 Kings or 2 Kings as a chronicle of events that somebody witnessed. We know that Moses wasn't there. But read them rather as a prophecy. And one of the things that we know about prophecies, you know, you, you, you read the prophecies of Ezekiel or you read the prophecies with John and Revelation, you often are in territory uh, where things are a little wild and a little woolly. And some things are symbolical that are going on there. And things are being described in a poetical way. All right? And we need to be prepared uh, for that kind of those kind of literary features as we take a look at uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1. All right, if you have the passage, why don't you open up your Bibles? Let's going to walk through a little bit of this. That's the bad side of the room. Whenever I step over there, something like freaks out. Watch this, ready? I, I don't know. So it's it, the machine. The machinery is training me. All right, so uh, y'all there? Page one. It's easy to find, right? Where's Genesis? Page one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I love this sentence. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. What a reassuring truth that is. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That means the oceans or something like that. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now... What I want you to notice here is, is that we're going to see a kind of twofold creation that's going to go on. I mean, obviously the creation is unfolding over the course of six days, but here in this first movement, we have God creating the heavens and the earth. Well, what did God create the heavens and the earth out of? What did he start with? What were his building blocks? Nothing. Like nothing. Some of you are creative people. You bake and you sew and you build and you go off to the store and you buy your supplies. And those supplies are just you know, a big pile of boards maybe in your backyard or maybe it's flour and sugar on your on your counter. 
And you make the thing out of that stuff. But the first creation, it's just out of nothing. There was nothing, and then there was something. I can't explain it. It just is. And then there, okay? So that's the first creation. That God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And then, what does it look like? Well, it looks like formlessness and void. It's without form and void, tohu bobohu. In in the Hebrew, it's actually kind of a spooky little phrase in Hebrew of things that are just kind of dark and chaotic. It's a scary vision for the Hebrew mind, this state of the world there at the very beginning. Things are just chaos, a swirling, undifferentiated, dark chaos it's got stuff, okay, so, so we made some progress, okay, before we didn't have anything, now we got some stuff, but it's all just a mess. And then what happens? But God begins to form that stuff. In verse 4, we saw that God, God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Part of what happens in this other kind of creation, the creation that's not ex nihilo, is that you begin to arrange the stuff. You put the boards in the right way. You mix the ingredients together in the right way. And out of that, things begin to emerge. Out of this undifferentiated blob of chaotic stuff, God begins to shape and to mold things. In, in the second chapter of Genesis, we'll have the story of the creation of humankind. And you remember that, you remember that story that, that God makes, uh, Adam out of dirt, right? It's like he starts with something. He's already made the world. He's got the earth. Then he takes some of the dirt. I don't know how he shapes it. Okay? Shapes it into something. Alright, then he breathes the breath of life into it. So, there's a second kind of creation that's going on here that's not ex nihilo, but that has to do with the forming and the ordering of the stuff that's there. Now, how is it that things are formed and ordered? You remember the procedure that God uses here in the first chapter of Genesis. Every time that, you know, each of the days, uh, God is creating by speaking. Notice though that in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We don't have the speaking there. The speaking actually begins in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. There's stuff. And then God starts speaking into the stuff. Okay. Words. Okay. Some of you know that the word for word in Greek is the same word as the word for reason. So in, in, in John chapter 1 where it says, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word for word there is logos, which is the same word as the word for reason, like human reason. Right? Certainly we think through words. There's some sense in which God's ordering of stuff has to do with God's intelligence. God knows how to do it. In the same way, those of you who are crafty, apply your intelligence to the raw material. And you put things in the right place and somehow something emerges. God shapes the world through His 
Word. Now in the Old Testament, the word for word is commandment. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, what's actually said there is the Ten Words. We want to think about that. Okay. God is ordering things. God is putting order into things. What we have at the beginning of creation is a disordered mess. What we have after God injects His words into it is an orderly creation, a cosmos, something that makes sense, something that's beautiful. And what I want to suggest in terms of our individual lives is that our individual lives are also messy or orderly dependent upon how much of God's Word is in us. It is God's Word which begins to make sense out of our lives. It's God's Word which helps us understand who we are and where we fit into stuff. It's God's Word which lets us understand that God has a place and a plan for us. It all fits together. I always feel bad for people who haven't heard the gospel because they suffer in peculiar ways that they don't have to suffer. And when that light of the gospel goes on for us, a lot of things fall into place. A lot of things begin to make sense. We can look back over our lives and see, oh, I see why God led me to this place. We can look into the future and, and be confident. Oh, I know that God is leading me to some good place. Outside of the gospel, we just are in this chaotic swirl. My concern for you is that you recognize that God made all of this stuff, that it hasn't been here forever. That God ordered this stuff by His Word. That Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. And that when we receive Christ into our heart, our lives become orderly. They begin to make sense. They become beautiful. They also become the way God intended things to be. Romans 8.28, that wonderful touchstone passage for so many of us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All of the parts fit. All of it works out for those who are called according to His purpose. My prayer for each one of you today is that you know the truth of the gospel. And that you hear God's ordering word into your life. My prayer also for those of you who are already in Christ is that you continue to hunger and thirst after the Word of God, that you continue to drink it in more and allow it to shape and to order how you think about stuff. All week long we're listening to the world, the world that's going to hell. We're listening to them all of the time and we wonder why our hearts are unsettled. Our Father is the maker of the universe. Our Redeemer is the Word of God who put order into all of this stuff. 
This is our hope. This is our security. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and adore you. We praise you for making this world and making it well. We thank you that by your word you bring sense out of senselessness. That you cause something to appear out of nothingness. And I pray that you would be ever more alive in our hearts and our lives. I pray that we would be drinking in your word. Pray this for our own benefit, but I also pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please join me as we confess what it is that we believe as Christians using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. You'll find it there in, in, um, in your bulletin. What does the first petition in the Lord's Prayer